Hi, welcome to the Listening with Heart podcast and radio show. I am Ella, your host and producer. Today's interview episode is with Kristen Miller, cellist and shamanic sound healer. I am really, really pumped for you to hear this interview. Kristen is a billboard charting classically trained cellist, and she uses Tibetan singing bowls in her sound healing sessions. Kristen and I bond over a lot of things, but we especially bonded during this conversation over our love of Martha Graham and her quote about the quickening that is within each of us that spurs us to continue on with whatever our life purpose is. This interview with Kristen is real and raw and honest and so, so inspirational. So make sure you listen all the way through because there are so many beautiful Easter eggs of insight to take with you. Before the interview begins, I am going to grace your ears with two of Kristen's tracks. The first up from Cello Journeys, her first release with Heart Dance Records, my favorite song from that record, November. And then after November, there will be Orangerie, which is from her upcoming album, Parisian Sketches. As always, all of the tracks featured in this episode will be in the show notes. So happy you're here. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is a Heart Dance Records production.
obviously, I would love to start with your journey coming to Heart Dance. So tell me more about how that happened. Because I remember a little bit. So my journey of coming to Heart Dance is that I had released some records between like 2003 and 2010. I had released three solo CDs that were all this sort of like composed by me, loop-based cello pieces that, and some of them had spoken word poetry and it was never really meant to be like bestseller kind of stuff. I was kind of rebelling against classical and rebelling against pop and rebelling against grunge. And I love it. I, like, I, I, you know, on the one hand, it sounds like very rebellious and awesome. And on the other hand, I kind of think like when you're rebelling against everything, what are you really doing? I don't know. It's in reaction <laughs> to everything. But all of that said, I was trying to make something new for myself. And so I was not targeting any kind of a chart, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so it was pretty esoteric stuff. And I was like, that's okay. I'll just be indie and we'll see what happens. So I had sort of a good local regional career. And then I got pregnant with my son in 2004. And at that point, I kind of was trying to keep things going. So I released a record in 2006. He was born in 2005. I released another one in 2010. And then I realized that I really needed to be at home with my kid and get off the road. And he was in kindergarten and mm. he just needed me and I needed to be there for him. Yeah. I wanted to be there for him. And so I still took gigs and I still played and I still wrote stuff, but it was mostly like I was doing really esoteric, like performance pieces with dancers and stuff yeah. like that and some session work and things like that. So that's cool. It was, I mean, it was really nice and it fit into what I was doing as a mother. And I really felt like, and this is like a whole other like conversation about the culture that we live in and the cultural imprints that are on women. But mm. I feel like any woman who leaves a performance career to put her focus on mothering is kind of seen as soft or like that she gave up on her career or yeah. that she like did the wrong thing. And like music is so, it can be so cutthroat. Like, I don't so have to tell so. you, you work for a record label, yeah, yes. you know, <laughs> but music can be so cutthroat. And I remember in my classical training, my teacher, I had this amazing teacher who had been to Juilliard and my te So after I graduated college, music school, I studied with this teacher, Mary Costanza, who's an amazing cellist. And I just, I love her to this day. And she gave me so much. But one of the things she said to me was, look, if you really want to work as a musician, you need to first of all, say yes to everything. Yeah. Everything. Everything. You know, the low pay, the free stuff, the extra rehearsals, anything and everything you want your name out there. Send resumes out. It just really make yourself known. That was the first thing. And she said, the second thing is understand 
that nobody cares if you have the flu. Nobody cares if you have a family emergency. There will be 10 cellists lined up behind you ready to eat your lunch. Don't mm-hmm. let a gig go to them. Mm-hmm. So that she was so loving to give me that advice. It's the best advice you can get. You just have to be consistently available all the time. Yes. Yes. And you have to, you just have to say yes. And you work with the flu. You take your, you know, three Advil and a giant cup of coffee and go do your gig. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how I was kind of raised in the classical world. So when I had my kid, I had that mentality at first. It was like, nothing's going to change. I'm going to be a working musician. Then the first fever came and it was like, oh my God, I can't leave my kid. He's got a fever, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so I think there's a real kind of a, a mark against women who make this decision to mother their children, like to really be there and to leave the stage a little bit for yeah. that. Yeah. And I also had something else going on during that time, which had more to do with me as a person, which was that I was starting to deeply evaluate what am I getting out of this? What am I hoping to get out of this? What drives what I'm doing? Mm. Is it because I want to make meaningful music? Is it because it pleases me or Am I secretly trying to win the approval of the sort of alternative crowd? Even though I've said, I'm not writing hits. I'm not trying to chart. I'm blah, blah, blah. But am I trying to win somebody else's approval? And deep down, the dirty secret was, yes, I was. Yeah. It's constant. It's it's, so human. Yes. And then I had to reckon with that. And yeah. so I kind of got off stage for a while and thought, I don't think this is a sustainable way to live my life. Mm. My approval has to come from within. Yeah. And I know that sounds very Eastern philosophy, meditation, blah, blah, blah. But it's the exact blah, blah, blah that I needed. Yeah. In practice, it's very different. Like you can say that all you want, but it's like, as soon as you really believe it, it feels very different than when everyone else said it to you. You know what I mean? It's like a very normal motivational quote, but until it's integrated in your body, it's like, oh, now I know what they meant. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think everybody has to come to their own reckoning with it. Do you know what I mean? Like, totally. There has to be something that pushes you to that growing edge of like, Mm -hmm. okay, it's so much easier to get approval from other people, but now I'm going to find out what it means to get that from myself. Yes. So getting off stage gave me a chance to do that. And when I started to return to stage, I started thinking more about sharing this gift that I had. And what it meant to to share this. What was I bringing to the world? So behind me, you can't see it because like my head's blocking it. But behind me, there's this thing on my wall that is a quote by Martha Graham. I love Martha Graham. Oh, my gosh. Don't get me started. I danced Graham as a child and I like obsessed with that. Really? Yes. Yes. Okay. So. Okay. 
my goodness, Ella, we have so much in common. So How much. will we ever cover it? <laughs> so you probably know her quote about that inside of each of us is an impulse and a quickening mm -hmm. and that it's our job to pay attention to that creative impulse and express it. Because if we don't, there will never be another one of us in all time. Yep. It's only us. That's it. It's uh, right. And so, like, I say this to my cello students all the time. I don't want you to sound like me. I want you to sound like you. Yes. But I want to give you the technique that allows you to play relaxed so that your voice can come through your cello. Mm -hmm. That's what I say to my students. Yeah. So this is what I started thinking about was like, if I can adhere to this idea that I am bringing through my creative impulse, my quickening inside, and I'm making it external. She also says, it's not our job to judge whether it's good or bad, whether the world needs it or not. It's our job to bring it through. Once you've brought That's it through, right. your job is done. Yep. That's all you're supposed to be. So I started doing that. Yeah. I started writing that way. Mm. And I started kind of like not being concerned with recording every performance I did and making a record out of it. And like I stopped calling material with this kind of scarcity mindset of like, mm. got to release another CD. Okay. So all of that was happening. And in 2008, I quit drinking, which was a really big thing for me. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, you know, like without dwelling too long uh, on that, I will say that that recovery was necessary for me, not because I was doing things like crashing cars or getting in trouble with the cops, mm -hmm. but because I knew that my drinking was a way to kind of stuff all of my stress and feelings about all of this. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to quit for yeah. myself. And when I was able to quit for myself, I was able to get real about those things that we were talking about. Like, who am I out on stage for? Is it to express what is coming through me in this very creative and spiritual way and authentic way? Or is it for everybody's approval? Mm. Because I think my heart's desire was to be able to perform from a place of this is what I made and this is what I'm sharing and who likes it, likes it. And who doesn't, doesn't. And that's it. That's it. Yeah. That is a challenging thing. Like it's, it sounds so great to say it, but Again, it's a really one of those challenging things. thing. Yeah. yeah. To actually to do it. Yeah, exactly. Hard to implement. Yeah. So, um, Having quit drinking, having reckoned with my my inner applause fiend, maybe because <laughs> we all have them. Such a good word for it. <laughs> I mean, seriously, Ella, name me a job other than in the performing arts where somebody goes to work and everybody stands up and claps at the end of the shift. Right, right. It's addictive. Addictive. Yeah. 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 And I mean, God forbid any of us has any part of us that was unseen or uh, unaffirmed yep. as children. I mean, geez, we'll just walk out on stage 
over and over again. Yep. Over and over, over and over. Yep. 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 It fills yeah. everything. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it does fill everything until it's gone. Correct. You know, you might, short. Feel, you might feel high like the next morning, like you have mm-hmm. trouble going to bed that night. You're like, man, that was so good. But what I realized as a musician, kind of getting back to the pressure thing mm-hmm. was like, you know, you have this pressure to perform. You have this pressure to say yes to everything. You have this pressure to perform perfectly each time, especially in classical music. It's like, oh my God. It's so intense. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, and I truly, I was not doing well with that. Mm. Like the, the amount of anxiety that came with a performance of having to nail it. And the weird thing is that people would say to me like, oh, you didn't seem nervous at all. I always get that too. And I'd think, yeah, yeah I didn't seem nervous because you weren't on the inside with me mm. going like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, am I going to... Am I going to make it? Am I going to make that next shift or that next passage or that that passage that fell apart in rehearsal? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. well, it, it's almost like it blocks the the thing that Martha talks about that's in there that's reckoning with you. It's like it it squishes it. It keeps it from doing its thing. Oh, my gosh. It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. Boxes it in. It does box it in. So I think I kind of had this whole loop going of like stress and needing an approval and drinking and like, it, it, let's just say that that combination was not good for me. And I don't think it's, it's good for anybody. No, definitely not. And I think it's why so many musicians who are famous end up with addiction problems or, you know, mental health issues like depression and anxiety. And, you know, anyway, I had all of that going on and it was really good for me to get off stage and reckon with that. And at the same time, be there for my child Mm -hmm. who is now 17 and, you know, drives a car and is looking at colleges and about to fly out of the nest. And so I can look back at that time and say, so glad I wasn't on the road yeah. trying to improve this career that I was kind of secretly using to make myself feel better. Mm. Yeah. I don't really know. Like, I feel like I've broken some sort of what what do they call it? The the third wall or the fifth wall or the side. I don't know what number freaking <laughs> wall, wall they say, but the fourth, thank you. The fourth, the third, the fifth, the fourth. <laughs> I feel like I, I've broken some kind of code by actually talking about this in an interview. I feel like musicians aren't supposed to say these things. We're supposed to be like, Oh no, you know, I just, I've worked as hard as I can. And that's how I got here. It's like, that's just not my story. Mm-mm. I think so many people have this story, but they just don't tell it. I think it's true. Yeah. I think it's true. I remember being in a, a workshop for musicians once and mm-hmm. a, she was kind of a country folk singer that was running this workshop about careers. And she said, no matter how bad it's going, you just tell people it's going well. You tell people you're getting gigs. You tell people, you know, because if word gets out that it's not going well for you, that can be the nail in the coffin on your whole career. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, I mean, my husband and I were both folk singers. We almost lost our house. And the whole time we were just like, no, it's going great. Yeah. 
And, you know, that was a piece of advice that I that stuck with me for a long time, along with the whole like there are 10 people behind you waiting to eat your lunch. Don't give up a gig. You know, Mm -hmm. it's rough out there. And so I had all of that going on. And I think most of us do. And so, um, you know, I, I just feel like I can't. I can't sit here and lie to make everybody comfortable. You know, it's like, this is my story. It's messy. Yeah. Well, that's the mess of all life. And I think musicians above all other people know that the most they're expressing that mess all the time, most of the time. And so I feel like more musicians need to be speaking the way you're speaking because it's integral that people are hearing this from like your mouth that are like really hearing your words and your voice listening. Because it, it changes the way people think. It does. Yes. And, and I, you know what? I think what we're talking about here is that it's really isolating to be a musician. Mm-hmm. Even though we make music with others and there's a whole community of us, if people are hiding and saying like, no, it's going great when it's not, or, you know, I don't know why I can't get a gig, blah, blah, blah. I don't know why I can't get booked by so-and-so. I don't know, you know, and living with this stress of like your career is only as good as your last good performance. You get up on stage and F it up. You're like really sorry afterwards. Yeah. Mm. There's no take backs. It's all out there. Yeah, that's it. Especially now with the internet, it's like even more that way. (gasps) It's so true. It's like everything is eternal. (laughs) Yeah. You know, recently somebody recorded my warm up and posted it on Instagram. Wow. Really? Yeah. At a, at a gig. And I was like, okay, you know, thank you for posting on Instagram. It's always nice when people are saying like, oh, hey, so happy to be here. But like, I was warming up. I wasn't in tune yet. I was like, wow, listen to my intonation while I'm more, I like, I just pulled the cello out of a a cool car. You know what I mean? Temperature was cool outside and I got inside and it was really warm and I was kept tuning the cello and like, and like my fingers hadn't found it yet. And I was, yeah. yeah. So like that happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think goes back to the attitude of especially in America, but I think all Western countries, we have a very consumerist idea of everything and that includes music. And so it's like, you have to A, be constantly available and people are expecting you to be constantly available and they want to consume everything you're doing, including your warmups. <laughs> wow. So, it's so just, well put, yeah. Ella. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's the problem. <laughs> yes. Expected to be available. And everybody wants to consume everything you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So fast forward to 2017. Yeah. And my husband and I at the time separated. And it was really hard. Mm -hmm. And I was a mother and a musician. And I moved to a town that was like the only town I could afford to live in on that kind of like dribble of income, you know, being a part time musician and a mother is uh, there are serious economic repercussions to that. And, um, you know, fortunately, the person I was divorcing is actually a really lovely person and 
did not pull any, neither of us pulled any of the shenanigans that you hear about in divorce cases. We both were transparent. We both were kind. We both said to each other, this is hard enough. Let's not be jerks to each other. And we weren't. We really went out of our way to kind of take care of each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it all kind of worked out. But I had moved to this I had moved out and I had moved to this apartment in this town that was really unfamiliar to me. And, um, you know, it was on a busy street and, you know, sometimes there were meth heads walking past my front door and I was kind of like, well, this is new, you know, here we are, here we are in our new place. And, um, the phone rang like a week into it as I was like unpacking all my boxes in my music studio. Um, the phone rang and it was a producer who was doing a record with a, at the time was a little known guitarist named Ryan Judd and Ryan was in the wellness industry as a music therapist and a very talented guitarist and was just writing these really beautiful pieces that he wanted to put out as relaxation music. And I got a phone call from a producer saying like, hey, do you want to come and play one piece for us? And I said, you might want me to do two because I could probably knock one out in an hour and I have two hour minimum in the studio. So you might want me to do two. And he said, great, come do two. And I did the two. And I didn't meet Ryan at the time. I It was just me and the producer and I played. And then I got a call back like a few days later. Do you want to come and play all 10? And I said, yes. Yes. So it was really cool. He would send me the tracks in advance. I'd sketch out some ideas and then I'd just come in the studio and do a bunch of takes and he'd go, yeah, I think we got everything we need. So we were just kind of doing two, three at a time. And, um, the record was released and it went kind of like viral. Ryan is on top of being a really nice composer and guitarist, a really good music business person and knew kind of like where to send it and what to do and how to make it happen. And this thing sat on the Billboard New Age Top 10 for 54 weeks. As it should. And so here's like the other part of the story is it had gone viral or big or whatever you want to call it. You know, most of us toil away in obscurity with dreams of hitting Billboard or winning a Grammy or getting a nomination or anything like that. This thing won a Zone Music Award for Album of the Year. You know, it went crazy. And I, in my distracted, mothering, divorcing, just moved to a new place, new neighborhood, trying to make sure my kid was okay. It was really not an easy time for me and trying to figure out how was the divorce going to go and kind of negotiate that out so that everybody's okay and thinking about like, will my ex-husband be okay? Will I be okay? And especially our kid was at the center of will he be okay? I signed a standard work for hire contract on that. Mm. Ella, my name was not Uh. even on the cover of the record. It's not in the metadata anywhere. I'll just let that land for a moment. 
Mm-hmm. It was a time in my life that was so, I felt so sucker punched by what was going on with my whole family life falling apart. You know, Ryan sent out a standard work for hire contract because that's like what people send out when they hire a session musician. Mm -hmm. I did not have the presence of mind nor the bandwidth to really think it through. Something was bothering me about it, but I couldn't, I just, I, I, after much delay, I just kind of signed the contract and sent it out. And then the record did the thing that we all wish a record would do. Mm. It just went crazy. I talked to a good friend in the industry about it and just said, like, it's a lesson learned, I guess, but I, I need, I'm going to need some advice. I need some mentoring and kind of something that was said to me, um, about like a collab or whatever was like, well, look at your Spotify. You have like, six monthly listeners. And again, coming back to this cultural imprint that's on all of us of this patriarchy of like, well, you only have six monthly listeners on Spotify. Well, when I first started out my career, there wasn't a Spotify. Correct. It was (laughs) like we, I was, I was sending out press packets in the mail in 2003, 2005. Yeah, I was like, you literally pounded the pavement and went and met club owners and all. There was no digital press kit. That was like just at the very beginning, you know. Yeah. Itemized page. Now it's all that. It's it's all that. Just that. Nobody wants to open the mail and pop in a CD. That doesn't happen. Mm -mm. So it was sort of like I had taken this hiatus to raise my kid. And to reckon with myself as an artist. And when I came, like, when I came back from that deep dive and came up for air, I came up in a different part of the ocean and everything had changed. Yeah. And for me, you know, I started my career in my 30s as a, as a, a musician composing and doing CDs before that I was teaching music and playing classical gigs Mm -hmm. and unhappy about it. Yeah. Honestly, not about the teaching part. I love teaching and I'll teach till the day I die probably, but the, the classical gigs, I, it just wasn't feeding my soul at all. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I was told that about my Spotify, I thought I have no idea how to do this for myself. And one of my friends in the industry said, you might want to talk to Sherry Finzer. Like you you need a, you need a mentor here. So I did, I talked to Sherry and at the time my mother, my father had just died. Hmm. He had gotten cancer. He got really, really sick. My sister and my mom and I took care of him to his death. And that hit us really hard. We're a close knit family. And then my mother, the pandemic hit and my mother was living with me part time and my sister part time. We didn't want her all alone. And it was really hard. So here I was again, family duty. And I, I, I was going to use the word obligation, but 
it's not an obligation. You want to love your family. You want to take care of your loved ones. I wanted to take care of my mother along with my sister. Yeah. And I had a teenager now. (sighs) It's so much. It's so much, Ella. It's so much. And COVID and had been through the divorce Mm. and my father had just died. Mm. And here I was trying to pick up my career feeling like, Hey, you know, I think I've still got something to say as an artist and something to share as an artist. And so here I was in my fifties saying, I think the world needs to hear more from women of my age category. Everything cannot be young and sexy. Everything cannot be. It cheapens it. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I decided I was going to do this. And I talked to Sherry and I remember having these meetings with Sherry upstairs in my house, in this, in my guest bedroom, because I had moved my mother into my music room, which is on the first floor so that it was easier for her. And I remember being like cloistered up in this little room upstairs in my house and talking to Sherry and Sherry walking me through like, Go to Apple Music and claim your profile. Go to Spotify and claim your profile. And me kind of digging the cobwebs off of my brain going like, okay, it was kind of like shit was hitting the fan one after another after another to the point where I was sort of like, why do I even bother to change my clothes between shit hitting the fan? Like, I get everything cleaned up and it hits again. Like, (laughs) it was that. Yeah. So it seems like... Gosh, Kristen, why would you try to do things like claiming your Spotify profile and getting a digital presence Mm. in the middle of that? But I felt like I couldn't not do it. I couldn't not do it. The quickening was there in the middle of life, handing me lemons over and over and over again. I decided to like get out the juicer and make lemonade. And that's what I I did. I love it. And when my father's first anniversary of his death came around, I got this massive spiritual download for a record that I'm still writing two years later. And so I told Sherry everything while I was talking with her about all of it. And she just said, like, I I think if you can just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. She said, you sound really overwhelmed, but just put one foot in front of the other. And, and then during one of our meetings, she, she mentioned like one more piece of PR at like, maybe like getting on Instagram or something. And I think I put my head in my hands and she said, (laughs) and she said, you seem really overwhelmed. You just seem overwhelmed. I said, I am. It's just a lot. She said, I know. She said, well, I'm happy to mentor people to release on their own, but would you rather release on the hard dance label? Yeah. And I cannot explain to you the amount of excitement that coursed through my veins when I heard those words. I I was just like, Really? 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 You want my music on your label? Because Ella, 
I was just planning to do the slog for, you know, indefinitely. And the thing is, I, I still do all of those things. I check my artist profile on Spotify regularly and I update all of my things and I go to my website and update and I, you know, send out my email letter and all of the things that we need to do for getting music out there. Out there, absolutely. But to have a partnership with a label so that you all are doing things on your end, like yeah. my band camp profile, like, uh, yeah, all of the things that you all do, the playlist pushes and the radio pushes. And, you know, when you have somebody like Sherry, who is so trusted in yes. the new age and relaxation music and wellness music category, you know, having somebody like her saying, hey, take a listen to this. I really believe in this music is... It's big. It's big. It means a lot. Yeah. And so that is the long drawn out. I don't know how you'll ever edit that into a story story <laughs> of how I came to Heart Dance Records. That was and it's, perfect. It's not a pretty one. It's not a neat and tidy one. And it's not an easy one. There's like plenty of suffering in that story. Yeah. Yeah. But it comes it comes through in such a beautiful way in what you write. It Thank makes it you. so rich, like truly so, Thank so, you. so, so rich. I remember somebody asked Lori Anderson, why do you write? And she's mm -hmm. like my hero. She's and they said, why do you write? And she said, I think because I'm lonely. Yeah. And she confesses so yeah. easily, so fluidly. And if she can tell that truth, my gosh, we all need to tell our truth. Because it changes people. It really does. Conversations like this and like that genuinely change like the trajectory of people's day. And then that trajectory changes the their week and then it changes their month and so on and so on and so on. So, yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. So Ryan Judd came back to me after an open sky. We um we made another record together. Awesome. And he was really cool about it when I said to him, like, hey, I know I signed the standard work for hire last time, but not this time, please. Yeah. Can I can I please get some credit? And he said, absolutely. Let's talk. Yeah, that's so good. Which was great. I, Ryan, yeah. you know, he's a friend to this day. That's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. So good. Absolutely. And like I said, he's, I mean, he's just amazing with the business of music. He, yeah. he's got it figured out and he spent a long time figuring it out. You know, he's a done a lot business. of work. Yeah. You know, like, no, I don't think any other business runs the way the music business does. It's like, there's nothing that works quite the same. And it keeps changing so quickly. It's mind blowing. It's another reason why artists, I think, need labels. We need you guys. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I I think so because I would ra way rather do something in community and in partnership. Yeah. Always. Always. It's so and much more powerful. We're meant to live that way. Everyone is. And I, I've been reflecting on this so much lately. As I, And this is also kind of one of the motivating desires behind wanting to do the podcast is that we are so isolated 
as people in our society and it goes back to the patriarchy and the consumerism and all of that is it's you have to look out for yourself and only yourself and that's not at all how we were meant to live ever no one was no it's not how we're meant to live and it's definitely not what music was or started out as or is meant to be no Mm -mm. it's a it's it's a community affair yes it's meant to be shared yeah that's it and i will say it's really helpful i'm a sort of multiple income stream kind of person always that's the when I, i went to music business school they said i'll have five plus streams of income always that's it that was like really? drilled into my head. Yep. Really? Yep. I love that because <laughs> that is how my life has worked out kind of by happenstance. Yeah. I am a multiple income stream person and I am 100% self-employed. Love it. But I do not rely on the art, the music that I create to pay my bills 100%. Yeah, well, you can't. I, not. I, I think some people can if they go so particularly viral that it's just like they, there's no need for them to do that. But I would say 99% of everyone else that's a musician, they have to do something else. And I think there's something to that. I think there's like a lot of benefit to that because it you're allowing other parts of your life to inform your music, not your music to inform everything else that you do. And it's yes. almost becomes a little deeper. Yes, which I think is cool. Absolutely. And I, I want to be able to give work to other musicians as well. This, this idea that we're all here to kneecap each other just has to stop. It must. And it's just not the truth. (laughs) And, you know, multiple income streams is one of the things that allows me to not corner the market on anything in this in this geographical area. And therefore, you know, I work part of the time teaching cello Mm -hmm. and I have about 12 students a week. Awesome. But I don't have 20 students a week. I have 12 spots. And when they're filled, I give out the names of other cellists knowing that I'm helping them get work. Yeah. And they do the same thing for me. Yeah. And if somebody calls me to do a recording session, but I'm bogged down in other projects, I give them the names of other cellists that I like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I do part of my work that way. And as you know, another big part of my work is working as a sound healer and a shamanic healer. Yeah. And so my husband and I built this tea house in our backyard, this Japanese tea house. Oh, that's so cool. And it's, you know, the energy out there is amazing. I'm not sitting out there because it was 25 degrees this morning and I thought it's going to take hours to heat this place. And I, today's a cello day for me. So, um, I'm in my music room right now, but man, the, the, um, the Japanese tea house and that atmosphere out there, I will see when I see a client, a session is two to two and a half hours because I try to get a comprehensive feeling for what's cool. going on. Yeah. A lot of people who come to me are struggling with things like anxiety or depression. A lot of um, the 
clients who come to me are women who have just left relationships or are coming into their own power at a certain point of their life. And so I'm doing a lot of that work with people and especially women. I do have male clients, of course, but my niche these days seems to be women. And all of that work is 100% word of mouth. Yeah. I don't advertise. I have a website so that people can look and see who I am and know that they would be comfortable with me or you know what I mean? Like it helps to see a photo of someone and read kind of what their life story is or Mm -hmm. how did they come to healing or whatever. It can be comforting to know those details of of a healer. But man, you know, it's all word of mouth. And so I do probably, I try to do no more than six of those sessions in a week because it does take a lot of focus to really stay present to somebody, to work on a soul level with somebody. I do a sound healing treatment with singing bowls, but I'm also doing shamanic techniques from Malaysian Borneo, like extracting energy that doesn't belong there. And I'm also doing soul retrieval, which is involved and takes a lot of focus and also bringing spiritual guidance to people in the form of power animals or spirit guides. And so I'm doing all of that work in a two, two and a half hour session. The preparation for the session is substantial. And then clearing all of that energy afterwards is substantial. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I try to do not more than six in a week. It's a lot of energy. And I'm yeah, at it, so. yeah, I for sure do less than six some weeks. Absolutely. Yeah. But six is the threshold because yeah. I'm teaching and I'm creating music. And so all of that allows me, just as I do with other cellists, if somebody calls me for a healing session, I'm booked for a month and they're having an emergency. There's a whole circle of shamans that I can say, well, you know, this person or that person, depending on the way they work might be better for you. Why Mm. don't you give them a call and you may not have to wait a month to get in with me. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to be able to just send people work and have that network and that community. And to me, that is the opposite of this idea that all the musicians are kneecapping each other, you know? Well, it's, it's, it's understanding the truth that only you can offer what you're offering. There is no one else. Like Martha says, there is no one else that can do what you are doing. That's it. Yep. And it's hard for people to know that. Yeah, it is. And that the world needs each of our voices. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm not special because the world needs yeah. my voice. I'm, I'm as special or unspecial as the next person because yeah. the world needs all of our voices. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cause you never know like what your medicine will do specifically for someone. Yes. And how like one fleeting interaction will change them. Exactly. Exactly. And 
those of us who are doing similar things, we can model for each other what we're doing and we can learn from each other. Like when I see things that Sherry posts, these, you know, whether she's using bowls or playing flute or whatever it is, she's posting inspiration for everybody and that ripples out. So hopefully when I post something, it ripples out. And, you know, being on Instagram, following other cellists, other cellists are following me. We're sharing ideas. It's just such a great feeling. And it kind of beats back that kind of isolation that we're talking about. Totally. Absolutely. Well, I think the the nature of shamanism, especially the way I have experienced it, it's also so incredibly community driven. My experiences with shamanic journey when I was 17 was the first time I did it. Changed the trajectory of my life 100%. I mean, truly. It does. It changes everything everything. It does. You can't look at yourself the same. You can't look Mm-mm. at the world the same. You can't. And I think the biggest thing I've learned in my shamanic practice is non-judgment. Yes. Yes. I can't judge anybody Mm-mm. or yourself or myself, especially yeah. myself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's so true. Yeah. If a client came to me asking for help to do better, I'm not going to judge their past. Mm-mm. You can't. I can't judge. Right. And I can't judge somebody and and look down on them and heal with them at the same time. Exactly. Yes. Healing I have to come so from an accurate. Yes. That is such a beautiful way to put it. Because that's how I feel every time I participate. Right. You're participating in the healing. You're not doing it. We give a healing. We get a healing. We're yep. sharing healing. Mm-hmm. We're sharing healing. Mm-hmm. We set up a container and we share healing. Yeah. And yes, we have techniques and yes, we have some of them are like magic wands. It's true. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But we're sharing healing. It's magical. What's your power animal or animals? Okay. Well, I I have like, (laughs) I love this question too, because I have a great number of guides. I think I have 28 right now. And many of them do different things. So I will say that for my shamanic practice, like as my guide through my learning was tiger and is tiger. Yeah. And tiger is not, um, I have, uh, let me put it this way. I have other guides that I communicate with much more frequently and they say a lot more to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the big lessons, the big ones yeah. come from Tiger. Yeah. When I was first starting out, I can say <laughs> I was the worst shamanic student ever. <laughs> so I studied shamanism with Anne Drake, who wrote The Healing of the Soul. Yeah. And um, she also wrote a second book called The Energetic Dimension. And she's working on a third book now. So I studied with Anne back in 2010, 2011, 2012, and it was comprehensive two-year class and we would go one Saturday a month all day. And it was, it was awesome. But I was like the worst shamanic student, like the worst because, you know, she would give us practices to do and I would forget all about it for like the whole month and then show up in class and should say, now, how many of us have been meditating and working with our power animals? And I would like sit there and shrink in the circle. And I would think, wow, bad student. Or like, 
The big example for me is that I would start doing work on someone in class. So, you know, class was like we would get a teaching, we would do a journey, and then we would work on each other. That's yeah. kind of the format. Mm-hmm. So I would get a teaching and I would do my journey and then we'd get to work on each other. And I'd go to work on somebody like doing an extraction or a soul retrieval or a past life soul retrieval or whatever. And I would, I would say, nothing's happening. I'd say that in my mind to my guides. Nothing's happening. How come nothing's happening? I don't see anything. Everything's white. You guys, what's going on? (laughs) So, So Tiger would say to me, stop being so impetuous. If you would like to do this work, consider patience and grounding. Yeah. And then I'd be like, oh, 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 okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. (laughs) Right. I'd be like, oh, right. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Sometimes I would say to my guides things like, how come blah, blah, blah is happening? How come that energy looks blue when with this other person it looked black? How come blah, blah, blah? And they'd look at me and say, none of your business. You don't need to know that. That's what all my mentors say every time. (laughs) Oh, I'm so happy that that happens. (laughs) I'm so happy that that happens to somebody else because, yeah, one of my guides. Yes. I want to understand. I'm like, but why? Yes. You don't need to know. know. Yeah. None of your business. One of my guides likes to say in a very coy way, knowledge is on a need to know basis. Ooh, that's a good one. I'm going to say that one. In other words, you don't need to know this right now. (laughs) Sometimes it's almost like they don't say these exact words to me, but often the attitude, especially from Tiger is sort of like shut up and heal. Yeah. Just shut up and do the work. Like stop talking, stop thinking. And that's really what they're about. My guides will tell me all you have to do is see with your heart and you'll know exactly what to do every single time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Always. I feel like, I feel like I tend to take things pretty seriously too. I think that's something that I've had since I'm a Capricorn. It's just in the, in the DNA. Yeah. (laughs) But mine is a dolphin. And she is like always just play, just play, just play. And she always comes to me with this humor. She just reminds me that there is, they have such beautiful, unique medicine for each of us. Everything's so much more fun when you just play. It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. Effortlessness is another one that my guides tell me all the time. Like, yes. Especially in the beginning when I was working with the singing bowls. So I used the singing bowls to do extraction on a client. And in the beginning, I was working hard at it. And they would say, why are are you working so hard? Don't work hard. Just sound the bowl. Let the bowl do the work. Let the sound do the work. Yes. That's what what you have it for. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, in those ways, I am like the most unzen, like Western, like I came to it with all of that. And when I was studying shamanism, my, my shamanic teacher, I think I've told you this in the past, my shamanic teacher kept saying, I see you doing sound healing. Every time we would journey on what is my purpose. Yeah. 
She would say, and I see you doing sound healing, Kristen. And I would sit in the circle and I would say, thank you for sharing that. But we all know that sound healing is bullshit and I'm not doing it. (laughs) And this is what I mean. The worst. I was just the worst shamanic student. Just the worst. (laughs) But the best. Maybe because I th- I had to get over all of my doubt and skepticism yeah. and uh, all of that and yeah. and impetuousness and immaturity and groundlessness. I had to get over all of it and continue to work at all of that. And yeah. so maybe that allows me to be more understanding with my clients. I've, I'm sure there's no way it wouldn't be. Yeah. 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 That's incredible. Okay. So tell me this, the story of the sound healing, because I've heard the story, but I want everyone to hear the story. So how did you, you went to school in Colorado. How did that come about? Oh, (laughs) okay. So my teacher, Anne would say, like I said, Anne would say, and Kristen, I see you doing sound healing. And I'd go, we all know that sound healing is bullshit and I'm not doing it. And the reason to be fair to me for a minute, the reason I thought that is because I had, um, I had suffered for many years with endometriosis, which for those of you who have not had the pleasure of this disease is when the material from the inside of the uterus that is supposed to stay inside of the uterus, except once a month when you have a period Uh, for some of us lucky campers, mm -hmm. that material, those uterine cells and tissue can go outside of the uterus and wreak havoc all over the body. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, the result of that is that it can grow on, like it can attach to like ligaments, supportive Mm -hmm. ligaments in the abdominal cavity that are not meant to have attachments on them. And Mm -hmm. then it results in scar tissue. Mm-hmm. So that when you do something like, say, I don't know, get pregnant and grow a baby, it yeah. yanks on those ligaments and the ligaments won't give because they're covered in scar tissue. And stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And I suffered horribly with it so much so that on my ovary, I had this great big cyst that was what they call a chocolate cyst, which is when you have endometrial lining outside of the uterus. And that's what that cyst was. So I went to an acupuncturist Mm -hmm. who shall remain nameless, Mm -hmm. who was studying shamanism and knew just enough to be dangerous. And yeah, yeah. And uh, like, that's a whole, we could spend a whole podcast talking about charlatanism, but we want dabbling. Yeah. And dabbling, dabbling. Yes. Like even with well-intentioned, well-intentioned dabbling, bad, 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 bad. Okay. So I went to an acupuncturist who was a certified acupuncturist, but she was dabbling in energy work and shamanism. Mm -hmm. And she would take tuning forks and put them put the tuning fork on the end of the needle and this sound healing was supposed to clear up whatever was energetically wrong with me. And I would like to say that what I needed the most was surgery for endometriosis, but she waved a hand over my belly and told me that I did not have a cyst and I did not have endometriosis. Mm. 
And then I got fed up with the tuning forks and the acupuncture needles and took my films to the head of surgery at Brigham and Women's, the head of gynecological surgery and showed them to her and she put them up on the light board and she said, you have endometriosis. That's an endometrioma. The only way to remove it is surgery. So that story goes, I had the surgery and after not being able to get pregnant or stay pregnant for years and years, got pregnant with my son and had my son. Yeah. So I was kind of like, go surgery, you know, Western medicine mm-hmm. triumphed in that one. It does. And it does sometimes. And people genuinely, I'm, I'm very thankful because a mentor I had growing up was always like, sometimes you need it. Sometimes yes. there's nothing you can do, but get the surgery. It's why it exists. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes you need the antibiotics. Sometimes exactly. you need the surgery. And yes. that's why it's complementary medicine. They complement yep. each other. They do. Okay. So I was under that sort of mistaken impression that all sound healing was bullshit when really what had happened was I was at a practitioner who was not certified to use the healing in the way she was using it and it was being misused. Yeah. So what happened was Anne kept patiently saying, and I see you doing sound healing, Kristen. And I kept saying, we all know sound healing is bullshit. I'm not going to do that. So then all of a sudden, everywhere I went, there were singing bowls. Walk into a shop. Oh, it's a singing bowl. You know, um, walk into a place and there are singing bowls playing. Go to a friend's house and they go, oh, look what so-and-so brought me from India. And so... <laughs> I was just sort of like, okay, I get it. You want me to work with singing bowls. And then when I started picking them up, I had one. I owned one singing bowl. When I started picking up singing bowls, it was as if I could hear the entire universe in them. And all of my Claire audience, which we haven't really talked about my Claire audience, but I have it, started to unleash yeah and i could hear somebody's life story in their voice just Mm -hmm. in the sound signature of their voice and frequencies frequencies, yep Yep. and i just started becoming obsessed with singing bowls and needed somebody to teach me how to put these on people's bodies and ring them so that they could help Mm -hmm. and the place that i felt most comfortable with was this school out in Colorado called Atma Bhuti. And the teacher there, Seren, is from Nepal. And he traveled through Nepal, mostly on foot, because like Americans aren't used to thinking this way, but geographically, Nepal is so mountainous that there aren't roads that can be traveled by vehicles between villages, mm-hmm. some villages. And so some villages are a very remote, you know, two day walk from each other. Yeah. And so he had to kind of like plan ahead for that and made his journey and learned all of these techniques. Wow. And then brought them back. That's incredible. Brought them to the West. And so he opened the Atmabuti school in Colorado. So, I was corresponding with his wife, Ruby, and saying, like, when is there going to be another session? I want to come out. I want to learn. I want to blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty fairly newly separated at that time. And um, it turned out that there was like 
a, there's level one, two, and three. And to get certified, you need all three. There's no certification for level one or level two. Yeah. You've got to get the three in order to be certified to really use this safely on people. So um, I didn't want to be away from my kid. We were newly separated. I didn't, I, his world was already rocked and I had already moved and I didn't want him to, you know, feel worried without me. And so yeah. I signed up for the one weekend and thought I'll do this in three parts or I'll do level two and three another time or whatever. Yeah. So it was like March 2nd, I went out there and it was, I don't know, twenty. 17 or 2018 or something. I guess it was 2018. And um, I went out there and I took that first weekend and I was driving to the airport to return my rental car. And I got a thing on my phone that said, your flight's canceled due to a snowstorm out east. And I thought, well, that's inconvenient. Let me reschedule my flight. So I pulled over and I went, I called JetBlue and I was on hold for 45 minutes. Classic. Yeah. Because everybody and their dog was trying to reschedule their flights from out west to back east. So at the end of the 45 minute hold, there weren't any flights left. And the next one, the next available one she could get me on was six days later (laughs) and the only choice I had was to stay in Boulder Colorado and take level two and level three (laughs) which was happening that week spirit was like you're not leaving good try though (laughs) yeah nice nice try trying to be a responsible mother and all but (laughs) you're here and we're taking advantage of it So even like the Airbnb I was staying in was like the downstairs of somebody's house, this really wonderful woman. Um, and she, I called her and said, look, I know that on Airbnb, it says it's not available, but my flight just got canceled and I'm here for the week. And she said, oh, I'm actually going on vacation, but I totally trust you in my house. And she rented to me oh my God. next week while she I wasn't there. Thank God for people like her. Really? Truly. Truly. So I showed up at uh, Mabuti school the next day and said, hey, guess what? My flight was snowed out and I'm here for the week. And I paid my money and took the class. And I just, like a thirsty sponge, just gathered up all of that information and immediately started synthesizing it to... How do I bring this to my shamanic practice? Yeah. And so I just started adapting some of the different healing methodologies that Seren taught us to work with shamanism. That's incredible. So I use the bowls for extraction and soul retrieval and for ceremony after soul retrieval. Plus the bowls, as you know, are so relaxing. Mm, They put a client into such a relaxed state Yes, for the treatment. Mm -hmm. It it really puts them in receiving mode. Truly, that's it. They become receptive. Yep. And I also think sound healing is so about the unconscious. It's about going in through the side door. Yep. Yep. That's genuinely 
the majority of what I do is that. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's about going deep into, I love doing theta, like brainwave entrainment and alpha. I love, I do it with tuning forks and cause it just oh. sets up the stage. It's like, okay, brain get into the mode where you're going to receive this the best that you possibly can. I am so excited to announce a really special Hard Dance Records event in October of 2023, Rejaminate. This is an all-inclusive health and wellness music festival featuring Hard Dance Records artists in Puerto Morelos, Mexico. There will be yoga classes, sound therapy, a full-service spa, beach concerts, rooftop concerts, and so much more. I remember when our CEO, Sherry Finzer, was talking about this idea, and I am so thrilled to see it being actualized. We've done a lot of virtual stuff the past few years, so I can't think of a better way to experience your favorite artist than on the beach, eating really good food, getting a massage in the evening, having some sound therapy the next day, literal paradise. Again, this event is going to be in October of 2023. If you'd like to learn more information, you can go to rejaminatefest.com. That's R-E-J. A-M-I-N-A-T-E fest.com or you can email info at vacationjams.com. The artists featured on this retreat will be Yvonne Tejeda, Kristen Miller, Majestica, Sherry Finzer, Brian Ficchino, Cass Anawati, Dallas David Ochoa, and Eddie Ryder. Make sure to stick around through the end of the episode to listen to Parc Monceau from Parisian Sketches and Meeting God in Heavy Boots from Cello Journeys. Keep listening with your heart. Rejaminate. Oh, yes. Are you so excited for Rejaminate? I'm like stupidly excited for Rejaminate, which feels silly because it is almost a year away, but you have to plan these things. You do. You really do. Yes. So far in advance. I remember when Cherry was thinking this up and she was like, I should do a retreat. And I was like, "Uh, yeah, you should definitely do that. 100%. It just fell into place as things that are meant to happen do. It's just. Well, and also I'm sure it did. And I want to say Sherry Finzer is a dynamo. Can we talk about Sherry for a minute? Yes, yes, we can. (laughs) So Sherry is, first of all, a lovely person because only, only a lovely person would think up heart dance records. Yes. Yes. Only a lovely person would do all of the things that we're talking about that are the opposite of patriarchy. Yep. The direct like, opposite. Yeah. Supporting other artists, supporting other flutists, mm-hmm. like just sort of like, Hey, this is what I figured out about the music business. Let me share this with you. Yeah. Where the music industry, other parts of it can be absolutely cutthroat or like infection filled. Yes. Just toxic. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like the opposite of healing. Yeah. So yeah. only a lovely person could think up heart dance records. Mm-hmm. And she also has that drive. Like she's driven. She's just so driven. driven. So driven. She is unafraid. She is like a great communicator. Yes. And just unafraid. Just sort of like, I'll ask her a question and she'll go, huh, I don't know the answer to that. Let me find out. Yep. Type, 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 type. Ask someone, call someone, Google it. 
She's very solution oriented. Yes. And she is. And I think that's why she was able to run the label by herself uh, for so long, which blows my mind. I, I don't know how she did it. I do not understand how she did it. She's a miracle worker. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the label and I mean, not for nothing. She's the go-to person for any new age artist to get radio placement. Yep. yep. She's the go-to. She's so, so she's doing all of that. Plus, I mean, how many records does the woman make in a year? <laughs> so many. I so many. This is, a, this is a good one. When she, she was at the tank. And when I was there with her in May oh, of yeah. 2021, she recorded 80 tracks while we were there in three days. 80. Yeah. No. It was ridiculous. It was, it was either 60 or 80. It was one of those two. But it was a, like, I do not know how she did it. And I was just sitting there taking notes and organizing everything. And I was like, Sherry, how do you how do you do that for that long? She just has a has a well of beautiful stuff. <laughs> she does. She does have a well of beautiful stuff. That's a great way to put it. She yeah. has a well of beautiful stuff. She really does. Yes. And Sherry and I are very opposite in that way. Mm. I, when I make a record, first I compose the pieces and then I edit the pieces and then I compose the pieces some more. And then I practice the pieces to get them like really, really good. And then I go into the studio with Tom Eaton. Tom is uh, an engineer and producer at Imaginary Roads, which is Will Ackerman's yeah. Uh, place in Vermont, which for listeners who don't know the name Will Ackerman, you know the name Wyndham Hill Records. And that yes. is what Will made. And I really love working with Tom. And Tom is such a great producer because he'll tell me exactly what he thinks. Yeah. And I like to think that I'm a good client because I actually listen to him. So when he says things like, I think your tone was a little strident there. You maybe want to soften it a little bit, round it out to match the rest of your lead line. I think you blah, blah, blah. You know, I will always take his suggestion and try it. I tend to be like a multiple takes, really careful, carefully craft everything. I'm writing multi-layered cello pieces in five and six parts. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a thick texture. Mixing is all like a whole thing when you're working with that kind of texture, you know, and that's like one song. Mm -hmm. So like, it's a big process to make a record for me. Oh, totally. Totally. Really big process. I very much understand that. I think I'm, I'm a multi-take gal too. I like to, cause then it's just, you know, why not? Why not? (laughs) Why not? And then you have a bunch to pick from that you really like. Yeah. So, you know, I just tend to be like a thick textured multiple take, like, and then the mixing part of like, which voice should come out here, which Mm. voice should come out there, you know, and Tom is a meticulous crafter of a mix. I love crafting. I love, I like crafting in my songwriting too. I think it's a beautiful process. I totally see that in your music and it's very, um, it's very total. Thank you. And I, f- I always feel like I will not play a single note that I don't mean. Yes. Oh, I there love won't that. be a note in there there that is extraneous to to what I'm saying. Mm. And I won't play anything I don't mean. Yeah, the brevity. 
and the clarity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because it's really important to me. And it's funny, I was talking with an artist who is, you know, kind of emerging and writing his own things. And, and he said to me, but how do I know when it's good enough to release? How do I know? Because I don't want to be egotistical about it. Like, oh, this stuff's so great. And I said, yeah, I, I get that. But I think this stuff so great isn't the litmus test. I think the litmus test is, does it say what I mean for it to say? Going back to Martha Graham, who is yes. kind of our theme today. Yes. Does it express that quickening inside of me? Mm-hmm. Yep. Is it full? Did I bring it through? Yeah. yeah. Did I bring it through? Yep. That's it. If I did it justice, I'm done. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. Done. And I think someday, someday I'm going to make a record that's just quick and dirty. Yeah. Someday quick and dirty, but that, so far it hasn't happened. <laughs> Something new to play with. Yeah. Yeah. I like switching up my process sometimes. Makes it interesting. Yes. Well, that's really cool. Okay. Well, Parisian sketches is, I'm so oh. excited about that. <laughs> so January 27th for those yes. of you that need to know because you do need to know <laughs> when this is available. I, how are you feeling about it? Okay. So this record I'm super excited about, which, you know, is sort of like everybody says that about their record, but I want to say why. Yes, please say why. So this record came out of nowhere for me. This did not come out of my brain. I did not go, wouldn't it be nice to write a record about Paris? <laughs> I did. It didn't happen that way. What happened was my mother had just died. So like, you know, the earlier part of the story was that my father had died and the pandemic had hit and I had gotten divorced right before that. And like, so now we had been through all of that and my mother had gotten sick and died in this room, actually, that I'm sitting in. We nursed her to her death in the spot where I'm sitting. Mm. And it's really meaningful because I got to do that. Yeah, And it was in this spot that I was sitting and practicing French music for a little recital that I was hired to play. And it was really nice because I was given carte blanche at this venue. It was like, can you just come in and do a 45 minute set? Yeah. And I thought 45 minute set. Yes, yes, I can. You know, and the pay was good. And I, I thought, what do I want to like? blue sky this thing what do i want to play and i thought mm. i'll do french music mm. so i was playing you know the swan by sanson and foray and you know it's very nice it's very french yeah very french very beautiful and i was you know playing uh Massenet and uh, i can't remember if it was the eighth or the seventh Okay, so you were probably fairly near it, but it's just a little park. It's not big, but it's so, there's so much beauty packed Mm -hmm. densely into that park. When you see the video, you'll be like, oh my God, where, where is this park? Where, where have I been? (laughs) And people just, so many people don't know about it. Everybody talks about the Tuileries. I think the Tuileries are dusty. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Not the same. 
Ferris just has so many beautiful little hidden. All of France does. True. It does. I spent True. most of my time in Angers, which is south west like two I know hours. just where Angers is. I loved Angers. It was so beautiful. What brought you to Angers? I was studying French in college. Really? Yep, yep, yep. So I used to work at a at a school locally here. Yeah. I used to be the cello teacher there. I was the cello teacher for like 10 years. Wow. At the school and it's a bilingual French English school. Oh they God. graduate kids speaking French. That's a dream. If you don't use it, you definitely lose. I know you lose it, but I feel like every time you lose it, it comes back faster. If you keep practicing it, it's kind of it's like true. riding a bike. You just got to keep bringing it back. No, it's true. Absolutely. So, um, I realized that I was seeing Park Monceau in my mind and I had that Park Monceau feeling and I was spinning out these melodies that were just very French sounding. Yes. And then I started putting the piece together and I always have a notebook right next to me when I'm practicing and I just started madly jotting it down. And then the next day, another one came and then... And then I was like, all right, I need to make a record. Yes. <laughs> so I called Sherry or emailed Sherry and said, hey, listen, I have a thing going on here. And do you want it? Like, would Heart Dance like this? And she said, I think so. Send send me some tracks. Mm -hmm. And I did. And she was just like, oh, yes, definitely. We want For this. sure. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. And I was, I was just so happy because I had been planning to release something else. Like I have to get, have to get to work on this next record, which I've been promising Sherry for two years <laughs> called Dwellings. And that's like a whole other project. And that involves the harp and me learning to play the harp. I remember you telling me about this. That's going to be yeah. so. Phenomenal. Oh, That's going to happen for sure. But I just felt like Parisian sketches. I realized that I was writing about these different atmospheres of Paris and that I needed talk about the quickening. I yeah. needed to get that impulse out of me yes. and write these five pieces. And mm. so I wrote Parc Monceau, um, Orangerie, Notre Dame. Flea Market, Marche Opus, and La Seine, of there course. <laughs> La Seine. Yeah. So I intentionally did not do the Eiffel Tower because yes. it's what everybody thinks of. And I just wanted to give some kind of another yeah. atmosphere than that. Yeah. And so but there's so much more to Paris. There is. As much as I will say that every time I lay eyes on the Eiffel Tower when I first arrive, I, de I definitely shed a tear yeah. and grab yeah. my heart and go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's the yeah. Eiffel Tower. Yeah. Especially at night when it does the little glittery thing. Uh, yes. We were on it when it did that one night. Uh, I've never so been on it. Only underneath it. <laughs> really? I know. I've you haven't gone up? Mm-mm. Oh, yeah, that's something to look forward to for sure. I'm excited for that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just felt like I had to write the record. There was no choice even. It was like, Kristen, yeah. you're doing this. It chose you. It chose me. And I also felt like, how could I be writing something so beautiful 
in the grief that I was in, mm. the shock and the grief of losing my mother. I feel like people can't understand what it is to lose your mother until you've lost your mother. And then mm. you're in this really terrible club. And so especially if you were like best friends with your mom, which my yeah. sister and I were. And yeah. I just thought, how could I possibly be writing something this beautiful in the midst of this amount of grief? Yeah. But I did and I was and it's all because grief is genuinely just like love that doesn't have a place to go. Oh, so yeah. That's how I I've never always viewed it. thought about that. Yeah. That's how I've always viewed it. And it's 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 a really a beautiful feeling. As as hard as it is, it's a very beautiful experience. So I That's think it true. makes sense. I see it. I see the the Paris energy there. Well, because Paris is so has this gorgeous, um, melancholy, like romance to it. So I I see the I yes, see Paris yeah. does have melancholy romance, and I feel like that particularly comes through on the track Marche Opus, the yes. flea market one is I agree. has that sort of like you're down, you're out, you're kicking around the flea market. Yeah. It's yes. kind of the seedier side of Paris. And yes. I wanted to show the seedier side. We all think Eiffel Tower and Sacre Coeur and and it is that, but there's a there is that melancholy yeah. kind of darker side of things that, you know, you need, you need some shadow to make a great drawing, right? You do. It's all of life. We signed up to come here to experience that. You know, I agree. And I believe that. And I say that. And sometimes, sometimes it all feels like a little much for all of us oh my gosh right sometimes i'm sitting there and i'm like i chose to do this okay um <laughs> my husband i say he's like a bobble doll like if you knock him over he bounces right back up i love people like that me too and being married to one is like every single day the positivity really <laughs> i i'm such a more positive person since i've been with him i can imagine yeah he yeah. like he said to me when I said I'm not I I don't think I'm coming back again. It's just so heavy. He looks at me, he goes, Really? I can't wait to come back. I've had so much fun. That's so pure. <laughs> oh, he's pure. He doesn't have a mean bone in his body or oh. a sarcastic bone in his body. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I'm so glad you get to experience that. Me too. Me too. And I have to tell him what you said about grief too, because yeah. he is a, he's a, an end of life chaplain. And wow. so he's, mm. um, you know, works with people of all faiths on grief and yeah. in using spirit to help move that heal yeah. and move and quell that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. So, well, I'm sure he has the best temperament for that. He really does you have to bring that type of energy to that type of situation always. Yes. Yes. That's beautiful. And also like he has a half hour commute and he always says that his commute just feels like it puts distance between what he's yes. done in the day and then what he comes home at night for like creating and he's an artist and yeah. you know, he likes to be creative and we have family time and it doesn't really impinge, you know? Oh yeah. I'm sure not. Amazing. It, 
some people are just very good at um filtering things my mother is one of those people she is very very good at just filtering the world and i'm like how do you do that that's well put yeah i know some people just have it in place yeah so, you know, in terms of Parisian sketches, I think you're right. You make such a good point that there is a melancholy romance to that yeah. city. And, and yeah, you can definitely hear it on that record. Yes, for sure. And I also think the other cool thing about that record is that my cello comes from Paris. Oh, oh. yeah. Chills. <laughs> I know. I know. It's made by a maker, Leon Bernadel, from the Bernadel family, which was a big family of makers. I think he was the nephew. Uh, yeah. That's so it, it wanted to say something too. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So that's... when I play French music on it at all, it sounds right to me. Yeah. Yeah, it lights up. It's like, oh, yes, I've always seen instruments. And I see this, of course, with bowls and doing sound healing sessions, but all instruments have an entity to them. They truly yes. do. They are very alive. That is true. Okay, tell me why the cello? When did that start? Oh, <laughs> that's another long story, I'm sure. But I would love to know the answer to that. I actually did a piece of writing about this that is short. It's just like a handwritten page. And I want to run and get that notebook. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, and yes, I'll read it. it to you. Yes. Okay. I'll be right back. That's perfect. Okay. So I recently took this writing workshop that was amazing. And it was based on writing down the bones. Do you know that book? No. By Natalie Goldberg. Ooh. You might like that book. I'm writing it down. So the idea is that you just write exactly the Martha Graham idea that we're talking about. You just write your impulses as authentically and genuinely as you can. Yeah. And then you edit later. So the prompt, the teacher would just give you a prompt and then you just take off with it. Yeah. So this was the prompt, a memory of music. Mm. 15-foot ceilings and stucco walls, hard tile floors, and a cello reverberating. I am in third grade, and the strings teacher is bringing fifth graders around to third grade classrooms to demonstrate their instruments. Violin, too high and scratchy. It's squeaky. Viola, too hollow. Cello, ah, Ah, my feet are transmitting the vibrations from the floor all the way through to the crown of my skull. Smooth, cool sound cuts through the sleepy after recess period. My hands tingle. A cello. I want a cello. No, I need a cello. On its own, my skeleton stands up and walks over to the strings teacher, a friendly 1970s hippie who smells of rosin and cigarettes in Chanel number no. five. I want to play the cello, my mouth tells her. I need to play the cello. Cello, definitely cello. Cello, she smiles. Here's your permission slip. Here's your rental form. It costs $6 a month to rent. Do you think your parents will say yes? I'll get them to say yes. 
All afternoon, I hold onto the permission slip, fingering and fraying its edges, knowing and not knowing the series of explosions I'm about to set off. Mm. I just want everyone to sit with that because that's that, especially the memory, because everything is so visceral when you're young. Yes. You really pulled that out incredibly well. I felt like I was there. Thank you. And I saw myself in my music room when I was in third grade. Yeah. <laughs> and I was singing in choir. <laughs> oh, yeah. I loved to sing, too. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kristen. This was genuinely so beautiful. I always love talking to you, and I am so excited for other people to hear this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on and taking this time. I can't believe how fast the time has gone, really. I know. I know. 